Loving God, from the churches of Macedonia and the churches in Corinth, we come to the church here in Brookline, listening for your word, awaiting your spirit stirring in us, kindling our hearts, our souls, our imaginations, and welling up with your kind of love. So may the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Through our series on stewardship, we have been hearing from different voices in the church. I haven't preached for four weeks, so I've got a lot to say. And I've literally been wrestling with this sermon all night long. Um, in a good way. And I also want to say for the youngest among us that may feel restless, should feel free to get up and move around, use our rocking chairs, whatever you need, and hopefully you'll be good and hungry for our lunch. As we heard from the Apostle Paul, since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in love that we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. As you may have seen from our stewardship materials, this verse has been the anchor, the cornerstone of our stewardship season this year. In reflecting on it, it caused me to think about when was the first time that a Homo sapiens ever gave a gift? Was it in some cave somewhere in what is now Iraq or Iran or Ethiopia or Somalia or in East Africa, in which someone, some cave dweller, took a rock and tied it up with a stone and other reeds and gave it as an offering to his beloved, or a fresh flower from the field that smelled good, or a sparrow that fell from the sky as a little appetizer, as a cat might offer you a mouse, proud and expectant and happy to have something to offer. We all know that it feels good to give a gift, especially when it's done out of love and devotion rather than obligation. But it also feels good when it's a commitment, when it's perhaps a little bit of a stretch, when we know we're supporting something good, which may mean some sort of sacrifice on our part, perhaps a few less lattes in the week or a few less meals out or just a little leaner on our meals, or perhaps a few less trips to the gas station or wherever else we might need to trim our lives, our very good lives, in order to help others have good lives. I also wonder about that time when the first church had to come up with a budget and do a stewardship program. You see, we like to think of the early churches as meeting in people's houses, and presumably you paid some rent or a mortgage, and you came, and all you really needed was the bread and the wine and your prayers and your song and the scripture. And you might take an offering, hopefully you were charged to take an offering, to give out to the needs of those around us. But at some point, churches became organizations, institutions, trying to work in the secular world, And we started adapting some of the processes and programs and institutional habits of those places. And we came up with budgets and planning and trying to balance things and also to work things out for the greater good. 
My favorite description of a church budget is that it is organized generosity. So Paul, in this passage, is talking about the churches in Macedonia, churches in places like Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, near where Lindsay just came from on her archaeology trip. And he's encouraging the Corinthian churches by their example. Some of us know that might feel a little shaming. It's as if I came up here and said, you know, look at First Church Somerville. They don't have a lot of money, but they do amazing outreach in their community, and they have a drag ball on top of it. Or what if I said, you know, my colleague down in Brockton where the median income is decidedly lower than here in Brookline has a huge outreach program to mothers on low income and their children. Look what we could be doing. But that's not what I'm doing here today. What I'm doing here today is to have us reflect on what it means to be caretakers of our resources, especially how we do it in an organization like the United Parish in Brookline. As you may recall, Jesus called us to give up all our possessions, to sell all we have, and live in poverty. And since most of us, including your pastor, have not yet been able to do that voluntarily, we try to figure out how to best make do with the resources we have, how to give and share generously, and how to come together that our gifts may add up to something bigger and better than the sum of our parts. But whenever we talk about this, I feel like we have to step back and pause and just ask the basic question, what are we doing here? Why are we coming here again and again? What is it that we want and need when we step into a place like this community? For the music to soothe our souls, most definitely. For the community to make connections with other people and to feel like you're not alone, surely. For the messages, hopefully. For some quiet sanctuary and rest from the rest of life, amen. Places like this are too far and few in our current modern life. But I've also begun asking with our church council and other leaders, what is our bottom line at church? One of my colleagues who spoke here at my installation said that the bottom line in church, the product we are going for, is a spiritually transformed person. Hard to measure. Hard to know a lot of times. I would also add that I believe our product, our bottom line, is about increasing love in ourselves and in the world around us. And in my time with you, I've invited us to dream big, to think beyond where we are now and to what kind of future God might be calling us or Jesus might be urging us or the Spirit might be moving in us. In my first year here, our interim associate pastor said to me, there's a little bit of a feeling here that the sky is falling, that we don't have enough money year to year, that we're running deficits all the time. I looked at our finances, I had a great meeting with our faithful treasurer, and I realized that we have faithful money that's been given over the years as resources on which we draw interest. We have funds designated for specific purposes, but we had a routine cash flow problem. And that cash flow problem has ebbed and flowed as I've been here. I scared the bejesus out of a lot of people by suggesting we dream big, but dream big they did. As our moderator at the time said, maybe it's that we're pointing to a place on the chart on the wall that might not happen in this year 
or the next year, but maybe in a successive year. Because I really believe, as I wrote you, as the Proverbs say, that where there is no vision, the people perish, and our job is to keep that vision alive. And amazing things happened. Every year that I've been here, our stewardship has increased, I believe, by two digits, usually. Maybe one year it was one digit. And we have, overall, increased our number of pledgers, pledging units, families, couples, individuals who make a pledge, an annual pledge, to sustain the life of our congregation. And as many of you know, but some of you who are new may not know, we do not receive funds from our denominations to fund us and make us solvent. It actually works in the opposite direction. And if you've ever studied economics, you know that trickle-up economics aren't the most efficient. What we do is half of our income in this church comes from all of us by making yearly pledges that we're going to sustain the life of this church. I want to say a little bit more about that. But what I believe in my heart and in my soul is that we have been on a very good trajectory, a trajectory of vibrancy and growth and imagination of welcoming new people. And my constant question, the one that keeps me up in the middle of the night, is how do we pace that? How do we keep reaching but not wear ourselves out? How do we do it faithfully, not just thinking that more is better? How do we deepen the well rather than widening it all the time? Now, for those of you who've been here a while, I want you to just check in about how it feels to be in this place. How does it feel in your soul, in your heart? Look around at the children who may be restless in the pews or with their pew pack pew bags with activities or their electronic devices. Look at our youth, several of whom just sang to us. Look at our 20s, 30s, young adults. Look at our 40s, 50s, 60s. Look at our retirees and our empty nesters. Look at our elders. Go ahead, look around and just take it in and note how it feels. causing an alarm about it, in fact. (laughs) It feels good. And I have to ask this as well. How many of you here are part of some ministry team in exalting, deepening, stretching, gathering, stewarding, counsel, teaching church school, leading a Bible study, ushering or greeting, thrifty threads, hearts and hands, the chancel choir, carolers, cherubs, UP ringers? If you serve in this church in any way, go ahead and raise your hand. It's amazing, actually. I have never served in a church with this kind of participation in the pews on a regular Sunday. It is a gift that many of my colleagues pray for. Yesterday we had a retreat with some of our council members and ministry team leaders about what it means for us to grow, what it would mean for us to grow intentionally and somewhat strategically. And Marla, our office administrator, who's been with us for four and a half years, spoke up and said she has been amazed by the transformation she's seen in this church in five years. Susan, who's been here somewhere between 16 and 18 years, none of us are really sure, says that she has never seen it so vibrant and people so engaged with the life of this church. And some of you who've been here 25, 30, 40 years or more, I know that you've seen the ebbs and flows of this place. 
But I think you would all agree we're on a kind of surge of vibrancy. I'm looking at some of the 40-plus members here and, and wondering if that's right. Yes. Now, in our time, as I explained to you in a letter by email a few weeks ago, we have increased the staff. Instead of having a treasurer working 10 to 20 hours a week over his full-time job, we actually bought, brought in an accountant for about two days a week. Instead of having a sexton who is mainly just doing the cleaning work, we had someone who was actually looking about the long-term sustainability of this building, and we elevated him to facilities manager and created that position. And as one of our longtime members said, we didn't realize that we needed this. And some of that was to keep in mind not only how we keep the church for ourselves, but how we share it with the community and those who rent from us and contribute to our revenue. We also added in that time an assistant director of music who has done vital work behind the scenes and in front of the scenes here in worship with our children and our choir, increasing our creativity. We also elevated a part-time section to a full-time section to try to keep up with our needs of the church and even brought on a part-time on-call section. We also, in this time, have tried to listen carefully what the needs of the congregation are, and two of our young mothers said, we need to have a nursery that is welcoming to all, that is well-maintained with a regular force, and we hired a part-time lead nursery worker which several weeks ago you heard how vital she is in people's lives. This week she went to welcome the newest member of our congregation, a baby born on, Thursday, on Wednesday morning. It'll, so I referred to this in a meeting recently as staff creep, the creeping energy of more staff. But one of our deeply committed, faithful, competent, and gracious members said, let's not call it staff creep. That connotes some sort of irresponsibility on our part. I believe we have been responding faithfully to the needs of a growing, stretching, vibrant, and engaged congregation that wants to reach even further with the love that it has in this place. And I believe that's true. And our human resources ministry team has done diligent work to try to make sure we are compensating people equitably and providing good benefits for them, just like any good business should. I just want to say something about our community in this time, because I believe that communities like United Parish now, in my half a century lifetime, matter more than ever. I am fearing for our republic in ways I have never feared in my life as a U.S. citizen. I'm concerned about the meanness, the pettiness, the overt xenophobia and racism, and the plans to rape God's creation anew. I'm concerned about the richest, most powerful nation in the world having an undisciplined, erratic, petulant, blatantly narcissistic authoritarian at the helm as a model of leadership, not only to the other countries, but to our children and youth, the generations coming up both here and abroad. And I believe that my evangelical sisters and brothers, in fact, I know many of them are agreeing in the same ways. It makes us wonder, what would Paul say? What would Jesus say? I'm concerned about us officially becoming a sort of capitalist republic rather than the democratic republic our founders intended. I'm concerned about becoming the sort of zero-sum game empire that the early church in Corinth and Macedonia was attempting to survive. 
I'm worried about that because I believe that we are an antidote to that sort of creep in the culture around us. I believe that we're about increasing love in the world, about spiritually transforming people, not only to those of who are here right now, but those who have already come through the doors and have gone on to other places, and those who have yet to walk through the door and who desperately need the experience that all of us are getting here. Now, I do wonder about the metrics of all this. I do wonder, as we've talked about in council, about the dividends of this kind of investment that we make. I don't believe God is very good, actually, at cost-cutting or budget-slashing. If you study biology, as our Green Up team shared with us a couple weeks ago, you know that God is good at balancing the bio-budget in certain ways, but does it in some fairly outrageous and sometimes crazy ways. I mean, who, after all, needs an orca? Or who needs a duck-billed platypus? Or who needs an ostrich? Apparently, God thinks we need it all and keeps creating that sort of abundance, except for the times when we undercut God. And Jesus is the one who described God as a parent who, when the wayward, listless, and irresponsible child comes home, the father kills the fatted calf and throws a big party. Jesus is the one who describes God as a host who throws a lavish banquet, not just for the people in the room, but especially for those out on the streets, everyone who needs to come inside and get something to eat. Jesus is the one who describes God along with the prophets and urges us to be on the lookout for whoever has the least among us, who needs a helping hand, who needs, who is an outsider or a stranger, for those who seemingly have the least resources to offer, to welcome them in and then be surprised by what they bring. I don't think God is necessarily the best bean counter. Yesterday in our retreat for leadership, we talked in another part of Paul's letters about when we are foolish and when we are wise. And in terms of the the standards of the world outside, God encourages us to be pretty foolish. When we pray, we do not say, oh, the great, competent, and cost-effective manager of the universe. We say God of love, God of compassion, God of abundance, which is not to say that we shouldn't bring some of the best practices, including financial practices, into the church. We should do that. But we should also remember that the standard we're working on, the bottom line, so to speak, is different than a for-profit business or even a nonprofit organization or publicly held agency. You see, the investment and the money we spend here yield dividends that some of us may never see. Most of you are not seeing how our former seminarian, Sidney Van Dyke, has been working her fanny off to help a church in the midst of a leadership crisis in rural Pennsylvania, applying many of the lessons she learned here. Most of us will not see how Lindsay Franklin will leave this place and what she will do with the mere $5,000 and hundreds of hours you have given her and she has given us, although I ask that you stay in touch with us. Many of you do not see what Liz Douglas or Catherine Henderson are doing in their ministries, people we nurtured and ordained in this place, or the grad students and medical residents who come through our doors as way stations in their professional lives, taking the seeds of warmth and love in this community and taking them with them wherever they go. We often do not see what happens to our children and youth who are taught here that God loves them no matter what, and leave their nests and fly hither and yon 
working as teachers, doctors, nonprofit workers, bankers, social workers, grocers, on goes the list. Or the families who move away and have been touched and sustained by the gifts of this community and how that strengthens and emboldens them to live life with courageous love. The prayer is that we invested in these folks with enough love and enough tools about how to live a spiritually transformed, God-loving, Christ-motivated, spirit-sustaining human life, and that we have helped equip them to be spiritually grounded and generous people in all aspects of their lives. I don't know if you're aware of this, but right now in our nursery, we have about 25 children on the rolls. In the past six weeks, we had four babies born in this congregation, three of them in the past two weeks. Our early grade school classes are starting to brim with eager young minds and souls. Our 2030s group continues to ebb and flow in beautiful ways, welcoming new people, saying farewell as people go their way, having babies, integrating into the lifeblood of this church in truly beautiful and loving ways, including last night when some of the true church geeks among them held an all-night lock-in for 10 of our youth. I say church geeks with great love as one. As Susan puts it, if there was ever a time to invest in our future and in our rising generations, now would be a very good time. It's not just about children, youth, and young adults, of course. It's about how this place helps all of us live our lives, helps us remember what is most important, helps us dig around in our souls and make some worthy commitments. When the empire feels like it's encroaching in in dangerous ways, How are we going to be the seeds of the kingdom of heaven right here in United Parish? The gospel, the good news, is, as one dear colleague puts it, where one hungry and thirsty person shows another hungry and thirsty person where to get some bread to eat and where to find some water to drink. And let's face it, at any time, any one of us are hungry and thirsty for spiritual food beyond bread and water, and that's why we come here, and that's also why we take it out to serve others. You may remember that when our UCC, United Church of Christ Association Minister, was here in September, she reminded us of our history, at least in the Harvard Church, our founding congregational church, of generosity and profligate thinking. She reminded us that it's in our DNA. When they built this building in 1870, they were living out of a 30-year-old building in which in 1840 they invested $7,700 to build it. They wanted to build a new building, but the Civil War encroached on their economic hopes. And so in 1870, they approved $60,000 to build this building. Actually, the building that burned down and we rebuilt again in the 30s. That was about $1.1 million today. So they approved 60000 but they actually spent 135000 or about $2.4 million. Profligate, generous, investing in their future, in your and my future right here in this place. Now, our stewardship and budget team took some very ambitious dreams of our ministry teams of our needs to keep pace with our staff, with our dreams for the future, and they worked with the numbers to try to get us to a budget that might be workable for our pledges. They are asking us for 100% participation in pledging, all of us who partake in United Parish. They will be doing follow-up calls, as we always do, for those who may not have gotten in their pledge by May 21st. 
They are hoping for an overall increase of 15% in stewardship. That's a big leap. It doesn't mean all of us have to do 15%. Some of us might try for half a percent or 1% or 2% or more. But they are dreaming big. If we don't make that 15% increase in stewardship, they are talking about some jobs we may need to cut. They are talking about how we may have to trim some of our dreams. That's the reality, and that will be between stewardship and budget and council and we as a congregation when we gather on June 11th. But you need to know that, that that's on the table. Now here's what I want to say about stewarding our resources in church and giving and pledging. I believe, and this is a repeat sermon for many of you, but giving and pledging are a spiritual practice just like prayer and giving to other people and sharing our lives, reading the Bible, worshiping together, and singing. Giving and pledging are an awareness that we actually believe the doxology when we sing it, that all blessings flow from God, that God is the source of all our gifts, that we own none of it. It's our job to take care of it and to be generous with what's given to us. Many of you know that the biblical standard is to give 10% of your income back to good causes, back to God. Most of us in New England have never gotten near that. This is the most parsimonious part of the country. But I know this place to be good and generous, and I know many of us, including myself, are working on an active tithe. You also need to know that a pledge is a promise. It's a promise that given what we know about our circumstances now, we will project from July 1st to June 30th that this is what we can give the church. We also know that financial circumstances change, and we may need to change our pledge along the way, either up or down. Our largest pledge in this place is $52,000. Our lowest pledge is about $10. You should know that Robert and I are giving 7.5% of our income back to this church because we believe in it. We believe it's a place where love wins. We believe it's a place that helps make us all better people. And we plan and are hoping to give the remaining 2.5% to other worthy causes that we believe in, that we believe are fostering God's kind of work in the world. What I know is this, is every gift is precious. Every gift is valuable. Every gift is a commitment on our part to say that this matters, that God matters, that God's values matter in the world. And only you and God can know what gift you should bring, what offering, what token. This is a special and holy moment in the life of our church, to come forward and offer what we have. Those of us who bring forth a stewardship form, we will bring it up here to the table, the place where we eat spiritual food. If you want to just bring an offering today, you can bring that. If you're a guest with us and want to bring your new member card, you can bring that. If you're not sure what to pledge yet or you've already pledged online, you can bring a little piece of paper, just take it out of the welcome pad saying pledged online or I'm still figuring it out, put it in the basket. It all matters. It all belongs here. Because you matter. God knows that. And I know that. Not only in God's divine and abundant economy, but in the overall economics of this place. And I say on top of all of this, that the longer I'm here, the fuller my heart is with love for you and the ministry of this place. It is good and holy and I am grateful to be a part of it. Amen.